Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, a love letter to the women who shaped me. If you're on the Kent coast, come and buy it from the Margate Bookshop, my lovely local. We're back after our summer holidays and we're kicking off Series 4 with an absolute treat of an episode. We went to leafy North London to nose around the house of one of my very favourite novelists, David Nichols. Now, I finally understand the meaning of needs no introduction, but here's one anyway. I fell in love with David's words alongside the millions of others who read his smash hit one day. I still constantly quote bits of it, including the magnificent description of a character who is the sort of woman who'd begin a letter of condolence for the words, well, hey, a line Victoria would be jealous of. But there's David's debut, the adorable and quietly devastating Starter for Ten, the comic, tragic and hugely underrated The Understudy, the melancholy, complex, grown-up us, and the hit of the summer, Sweet Sorrow. A novel that made me feel every single emotion going, including fear. I was a teenage amateur dramatist, so the story really hit close to home. You will have watched David's words as well as read them. His screen work includes adapting Edward St Albans' Patrick Melrose novels for TV. We talked about taking to the stage, the melancholy of the Moomins, and alternative readings of F. Scott Fitzgerald. We're in North London, um, and David Nichols really, really beautiful house. How oh, can I put this delicately and diplomatically? So, most of our guests have beautiful homes, but this is sort of the sort of house that you might go to as a child and think, "Wow, I'm going to be a writer when I grow up." Because look at this—that's how I'm feeling right now. But there's this really, it's very nice. It's actually, I thought it was grey, but it's a silver, a long, low silver coffee table, and on here there's a pile of. Um, LRBs, are you I'm a Rose. dedicated yes. no, they, they reader? Up. The, the LRBs and the New Yorkers all just kind of lie oh, there and make you feel, <laughs> making oh, you feel yeah. bad. Producer uh, Dale very kindly got me an LRB subscription for my birthday, um, which was nearly two months ago when I've not finished one yet. <laughs> no, you've uh, but there is really beautiful uh, bar bar, but is that late 50s, early 60s? I think so. Do you know, it's one of the things that I've never actually, I don't think I've even opened it. I guess it this is. This might it's be the first time that we've looked at books on yeah. people's it's coffee tables. colouring book. Oh, well, um, obviously too. Which no one has found the time to colour, but um, maybe but they it's, will one it's day. But it's too, too lovely. It is, isn't it? Yeah. It's um, just for display. <laughs> I don't want your children coming that. Actually I like being the, creative. There's lots of um, art books here and books about typography. Um, yes. Well, Hannah is an art historian, so she, again, has much better taste than I do and knows about these things in a way that... I mean, this, it would be 
disastrous. It would be all clip frames and ancient film posters if it was me in charge, but it isn't. So this did you get to the... Um, yes, this is the kind of... That's the sort of academia. That's where the, all the old books from our um, degree courses are kept and oh, uh, all the plays and poetry. A lot of um, Shakespeare and Oscar Wilde. Did you study... Um, drama and acting when you were a student or did that yeah. come later? No, I studied English and drama and we, I was at Bristol for a long time and um, yeah, we did a lot of Shakespeare and a lot of um, Elizabethan playwrights so that's why there's all the Thomas Middleton and Ben Johnson and everything and it's strange, these books are so strange aren't they because I'm never going to open one of these books on Marxist Shakespeare uh, but I, I kind of like having them around they're almost like... Um, an old photo album, I suppose, of who you used to be. So a lot of these books uh, haven't been opened for 30 years, I'm sure. There's lots of poetry among the plays. There's a lot of um, John Donne and Ezra Pound. Yeah. I really love John Donne at university I, I, and, and Shakespeare and the Elizabethans. That was my great passion. Everything else I wasn't really ready for. I sort of feel if I went there now, I might be uh, able to offer some insight or understanding but at the time it really a lot of it went over my head um I was really bluffing my way through and all I really wanted to do at university was do plays you know be in plays and that was my great passion were you in a lot of Shakespeare I was I was in um a midsummer night's dream when I was uh, in my first year of university so it was I was puck I gave my puck I would uh, <laughs> Lysander, uh, I think I've played nearly every part in Midsummer Night's Dream, oh, Starveling, all of these, um, all of these parts. Chagallin as Puck, that's quite a, um, yeah. that is a key role. It wasn't a great performance, it was quite big, I think. I think that was the, that was the distinctive quality of all my theatrical performances, was a kind of scale, was a great <laughs> enthusiasm and no real skill. But I did love it, and, and I didn't do enough, really. I was in the... Uh, much to do about nothing, which is my favourite Shakespeare play, but playing Dogbury, and again, it was just a lot of goofing around and a lot of unfortunate, unfunny stage business, and it never really, I never really did anything particularly well. But I did love it, and it's um, funny because I was thinking about just that the other day. I was, I loved drama at school, and I was never any good at all. But yeah. the notes from our teachers were always, always, you know, dial it down, wind yeah. it in. You are too much. Yes. And I remember I got a very, very, very bad mark for my Miss um, Gibson, and Daisy pulls it off. I think it was Miss Gibson, the headmistress, right. and I'd been sort of going a bit wacky with it and being encouraged and then I just really went to town when it was being and I think I failed or I got a D or an E or something because they were like no that was just <laughs> you no, took I it was, too far yes I think do less was the note I got throughout my acting career even when I didn't have any lines do less was the note that used to come back in fact this is my hold on a second he's climbing up here let's say um David so is climbing is, um, on his this is a history of uh, the National Theatre, and if I find the page, here we are. Here a bit of page turning. Page turning. Um, there it is. You see this silhouette there? This is a production of Machinal with Fiona Shaw there. Mm. That's me. Oh, wow. <laughs> so... And I had four lines, I think, uh, and two two of the uh, words were case demurred, but I couldn't work out how to say demurred in a... <laughs> American accent, so I think it was case demurred. So I don't think anyone even understood what I was saying. But yeah, that black shape at the back is is me. And even there in the picture, you can tell I'm 
doing a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> the tilt of the head. That, is that why you have that book? Uh, it's not the only reason, <laughs> <laughs> but it is pretty much the only um, proof I have that I actually did any of these productions. If it were me, that would be why I did the book. There's no shame in it. Uh, who would you have most liked to have played who you didn't have the opportunity to play? Well, the terrible thing is I, did, I sort of did play the part. The parts I always thought I could do were the kind of the students and the, the earnest students in Chekhov plays like Andre and Three Sisters or Constantine in The Seagull. And I was in The Seagull at the National Theatre uh, understudying Constantine. Which is, is it the seagull in the understudy? He, uh, no, it's not in the understudy. It's a kind of made-up play. Oh. But I was under—I was an understudy for a long time, and I did understudy these great parts. Parts that I'd have loved to have played. Best part being Constantine and the Seagull, which was one of my favourite plays and a great part. And when you're an understudy, you get to do a run on the main stage uh, in front of a, an invited audience. So I have actually played that part, but to an empty theatre. I mean, about six people in the theatre. So I learnt a lot of great roles and rehearsed them and never performed them Almost in like front of anyone. Almost like acting karaoke. Yeah, very strange. And, and after a while, quite dispiriting. I mean, when you start, you sort of think, well, I'm learning technique and I'm getting to work with these really good actors. And if you're in an understudy company, there's a sense of camaraderie and you're all in this thing together. But you're waiting really for someone to fall ill. And it never happened. For a lot of my fellow under, um, understudies, it did. They did go on and play big parts. But um, no, I, n- I never quite and got to do it. It's all about Eve, isn't it? You think that that is going to be your chance, that it's an yeah. element of fatalism, I guess. The universe will give you that. Yes. And, you, oh, and, and consequently, you have this rather uneasy relationship with the person you're understudying because you've been employed because you were a little bit like them. Mm. You know, you share... Uh, certain performance traits and you you look the same and you can fit in the same costumes. But um, even when you get on, even when you become friends, you, you're always wanting something terrible to happen mm. to them. Not truly terrible, but terrible enough for them to miss a matinee. Awful, awful thing where you probably, I'm sure if it were me, I wouldn't be able to help but compare and just be like, what is it that you have that I don't have that means yeah. you're... And often, the I, I think... Version. The full-time version. The, the, the misapprehension I went into theatre with really was that it was a kind of that it would be like university theatre mm. you know that you'd audition and um there'd be a kind of a sort of socialistic sense of the company and and everyone working together and of course it's very class-ridden and mm. status obsessed the theatre and you have to have a certain kind of agent and you have to have certain ways in and, and know certain people and I didn't have any of that really so and I, I suppose as well means to be employed elsewhere, either precariously or not at all, so you can go off. Yeah, and... absolutely, so that you can keep it going. I mean, most of the time, I was uh, I had an equity card for about eight years, and I was probably employed for about maybe two and a half if I added them all together, all the all the periods of employment, and the rest of the time I was working in bars, working in bookshops, um, or not working, just waiting, and um, it was very stressful it was very worrying I mean I was a nervous wreck through all my 20s really with that kind of anxiety was it going to happen oh would I get another job would the next job be better than the last one and uh, there was no upward movement really so did you find any solace in the bookshops or was it just very hard (laughs) 
No, I love working. I spent a long time working in Waterstones and I really loved it there. I loved working in the bookshops and I left it to go to the National Theatre and understudy for a long time. And I did miss it. I loved the staff and I loved talking about books. I loved talking to the customers and it was really a very happy place to work. Were you an effective bookseller? Can you remember what you'd recommend to people if they asked? I was, yeah. I was very uh, diligent and enthusiastic and I read a lot of new releases and I... I uh, I was um, really quite passionate about it. I used to run the children's section. Oh. And I was very proud of my children's section to the point where I, I'd almost get a little annoyed if any children went in there <laughs> and touched the books. Because, you know, I, I'd alphabetize the picture books and make sure it was well-stocked and everything. And I, I loved it there. I really loved the people. But then, you know, this offer to, came through to be in Arcadia, the Tom Stoppard play at the National Theatre to understudy. And uh, so I took that instead. So have you always written something? No, not at all, no. I always thought that there was something quite, um, not arrogant, but, but presumptuous, I suppose, about writing and asking someone to read your work. The only thing I con- wrote consistently were letters. I was always writing to my friends and putting quite a lot of care into the letters and making sure they had jokes and stories in and and observations and the good friends who received these letters used to tell me that there might be something in that that you know that 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 writing was certainly a better bet than than acting and um i had a couple of friends really who sort of forced me to write things my friend matthew who's a theater director wanted to write a film and and uh, asked me to work with him and another friend of mine claudia uh, who is a TV producer, She, I used to tell stories about the times I'd spent working in restaurants and bars and the people I met there. And she was sure that this would make a good comedy, this would make a good sitcom. So she, again, just pressurised me, kept on going on at me to write a script about my time spent working in restaurants. And I did both of those projects with not a great deal of confidence, you know, rather um, shyly. They were good, you know, they both worked out. They, they were, they were um, well-received. And I think I got paid, you know, a £50 fee from the BBC for the, the, um, the option on the sitcom, which was called Waiting. And uh, the film that I co-wrote with Matthew, there was a lot of interest in that. It was based on the Sam Shepard play. Uh, and eventually it got made. So I, I was sort of pressured into doing it. I don't have great piles of manuscripts, I, I wouldn't have been confident enough, I think, to ask people to read them. So I, I, I had to be forced, really. Did you enjoy it once you were doing it, or was a bit of you sort of thinking, still, why? Uh, yeah, I always, I think, I, I never felt that anything would happen with it. Uh, again, I felt you know, very far from, removed from that world, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, when I started writing that first film script, I didn't know how it should look on the page, I'd, it was an adaptation of this play, but I didn't know how that worked, how you would open up a play and turn it into a film. I, I, I sort of learnt as I went along, really. I suppose um, it's quite a kind of an intense, insular thing to do after doing a creative job that depends so much on the creative work of other people and having all those cues of sort of how to respond and, and where you are to suddenly be like, oh, it's just me and this page. You mean to go to fiction or... or, or, or to go any kind of writing, I think, writing. from the theatre. Yes. No, I, I, I think uh, there was always a question about who would actually, you know, be interested in these things. Because I, I love that in... Um, 
Sweet Sorrow, not to do a spoiler, but towards the, the very end, there's, I think, a kind of a, a friendly intervention. Yes. Um, and I thought of that when you were talking about what your friends were doing and saying, no, the, these are what your talents are. You must go and use them. Yes. I mean, the understudy is dedicated to my friends, Matthew and Rowana, who were the ones who really said, stop and find <laughs> something else. And um, actually, I realised, you know, that what I loved about acting was writing and that the, if there was a way of doing that, either as a script editor or a writer myself, then that would be a much, much better option. I think we should go and yes. look at some more. And so the fiction kind of starts up there. It's very vaguely alphabetical. The alphabetical order kind of breaks down halfway through the second shelf, but <laughs> to begin with, it's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. I can only crane my neck so far. I see Amos, I see Bruckner, um, I see Bronte. Yeah, they've got the, the A's and B's and C's yeah. together. And Joseph Comrade, Wilkie Collins. Um, what do you do if you want a book from the top shelf? Do you have a ladder? Uh, there is a ladder, yeah. I don't think I've, um, uh, I've reached up there for a while. I think, um, again, a lot of it is a kind of diary, isn't it, of your reading life. They're books that you haven't necessarily opened for a long time, but, and they often belong in a very particular, very specific time of your life. And uh, I couldn't bear the idea of, of not having them, but mm. I don't ever expect to, to open many of them again, really. Those still below paperbacks look. Fabulous. They look, I don't sort of sixties, seventies. Yeah. I don't know when they. Those 80s. are Hannah's. She's much more of the the bellow uh, enthusiast than I am. I've tried many times, and I I find him quite hard. Um, we both love a lot of American fiction, so uh, Saul Bellow is her big passion. Can you remember the first books that you gave each other, or the first books you read together, or found out that you yes, both loved? It was uh, the first book Hannah gave me. It's down here, actually. Hang on, what is it? It's, um, I think it's the actual edition. It's, uh, yes, Tobias Wolf. It was a, a book of short stories by Tobias Wolf. I think is this the one? And this was sort of on my, this was on my 31st birthday. Uh, I can't find the actual volume. Oh, there it is. I think it's this one. Short stories. That's a really good, yeah. I think, a gift to get, because you think, well, there'll be one in there they like, or... <laughs> You know, it's not quite as pressurised as giving someone a novel. A novel, no, absolutely. I, I, like, I'm making it sound like it's this great precious item. Now <laughs> I can't find it, but it's in there somewhere. But yes, Tobias Wolf was the first one. And I think I then gave her some Salinger, which of course she'd read. And that wasn't such a good choice. But uh, Hannah studied American literature and I've always loved American writing. So uh, that was something we had in common. So we sort of we skipped over. I know that's something so we're, we're slammed to the other. Are these a bit less kind of uh, alphabetized and organized. Although I see, it's Tobias Wolf is right by Virginia Wolf. And then after that, it all goes. <laughs> it all goes to hell, really. And this is the this is these more recent books. I mean, here are the multiple copies of of uh, ah. Edwards and Auburn because they were all sort of. Um, scribbled in and hacked about and cut into pieces when I was working on the script. So there are, you know, there are 15 copies of them all around the house. Do you say if you're just really bored of talking about this and don't really want to talk about no, it anymore, but was that, were you approached to write that adaptation or did you think, I love these books and I want to make them into something? I, I the latter really, I had to kind of um, pitch for it really. I, I'd read, I mean, we were talking earlier about working in a bookshop and I'd read 
never mind the first one while I was working in Waterstones, and then I read them as they came out every five years or so, and I loved them. And I was sure that there was a way to do them. Um, so when the rights were finally acquired by a producer for all five, I went and had this meeting, and I'd, I'd just... One day was the most recent thing. One day had just come out, and there was really no overlap in terms of no. style <laughs> or subject matter. So I realised that it was quite a hard gig to win. But I met the producers and we had a good chat and I said what I thought we might draw out in the books. And um, then I went for lunch with Edward St. Auburn and did the same kind of thing and asked a few questions and suggested things I might change and what I wanted to keep hold of. And, and then I, I, I got the job. And Was he very enthusiastic about seeing it on screen or did he have reservations about... He was a little. He was a little anxious, I think, because you know the books are so autobiographical mm. and are very hard to adapt. You know, because they're so. Not only is the subject matter so tough; it's that they're, they're very internal books. They're, they're they're not books that are based on. Usually, when you're working on an adaptation, you're looking for for narrative. Your yeah. scripts are very good. I've not really thought about that, but it's, yeah. there aren't very many kind of anchoring points where you can sort of visually have, well, this happens here and this happens here. Yeah. You've got to kind of there's nothing create you could those, call I guess. a plot, really. Mm. And, um, and there's no reason why a book should have, or a series of books should have the structure of a drama, but you need to impose that on it without twisting it, mm. without, um, without being too unfaithful, without committing too much violence on the, on the original material. So we... It took a long time. I mean, it took five years of writing and rewriting to get all of them in a producible state. But he was pretty supportive. I was, after our first meeting, he said, you know, we can either talk all the time or we can not talk at all. And you can either, you know, use me as a resource or just use the, uh, just use the books. And I, in the end, ended up really just referring to the books. If I were to say, um, David, I have a hundred million pounds in my bag and I have acquired all rights to everything forever okay. in perpetuity, you can adapt anything, anything. you like, cast whoever you want, oh you've got carte blanche. Oh, that's a tricky one. I mean, I, for years and years, I, I really wanted to do Danny the Champion of the World oh. by Roald Dahl. And I have just done that. I mean, oh, I've just fantastic. written a first script, so a first draft. It's a long way off. I don't know if it'll ever happen. Really, but that are, we was allowed, my... are we allowed to know about this? <laughs> well, I hope by the time the, this goes out, I hope so. I mean, it's a long way off, you know, it's just a first draft and who knows what will happen and it's very early days. But that was always my dream, that and Edward St. Auburn. And I suppose the other thing I feel about it is that the desire to adapt things is sometimes something that you, you have to fight a little bit. You know, not everything mm. works on screen. And there are certain things in the book that are very, very hard to do on screen, uh, internal voices, first-person narratives, novels that take place over a, a long period of time. So there are a lot of novels that I really, really love, which I would turn down just because I wouldn't know how to do them. A novel like The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford, which is a novel I think is wonderful. Uh, it, it's very hard to adapt something that has an unreliable narrator because... Mm. Um, on screen, when you show something, it has an objective truth. This mm. is what happened. In a novel, two or three or four things can be true at the same time. And the whole point of The Good Soldier is you don't know who this character mm. is and how truthful they are and how much you can rely on them. So that's a, very, that's a book that I'd, 
I'd love to do, but I'm not sure that you can do it. Another one is um, Hangover Square by Patrick Hamilton, which I have tried to do. I've tried to get going before because I think it's a wonderful book, but the right situation is, again, too complicated. But even that, I think it's it's very hard to get this... Do you, I don't know if you do know the book. I don't all. know Hangover Square. Hangover Square is fantastic. But it's about a character who... It's a very old-fashioned notion of schizophrenia, the idea that this character has a kind of Jekyll and Hyde personality. And in the novel, you know which version he is because you can, you, the author can tell you. Mm. On screen, you don't have a, an authorial voice to tell you what's going on. And so you're seeing what the other characters are seeing and the story doesn't work quite as well. So there are books that I'd love to do without knowing how to do them. Um, but a book that is available, which I'd love to do, I can't think of. Oh, I love Muriel Spark, and Girls of Slender Means by Muriel Spark is a fantastic book. I feel a you know better book than Miss Jean Brodie, and I agree. that's one I think about a lot. I wonder whether it's possible to do it. Like a lot of Muriel Spark stories, it has these strange, surprising elements, like the terrible violence at the end, you mm. know, the, 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 the murder that comes out of nowhere that doesn't really have any kind of... Uh, there's no lead up. It's just yeah. a kind of random act of violence. Things like that are very, very tricky. So she's tricky. I really love Muriel Spark, but that and The Driver's Seat, which is another book that I think is extraordinary. It must be really, really difficult to read for pleasure when a bit of you is thinking, is this, could this yes, work? Yes, yes. Is this uh, and other rights available? And yeah, no, almost everything I read now, there's a voice in the back of my head thinking, how would you do this? So I'm trying to shake that off, and 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 if I write another script anytime soon, I'd I'd hope that it would be an original screenplay. When do you read? Well, I used to read at night, but now, of course, it's like a it it, I, it just knocks me unconscious, and I I was also I'm a terrible insomniac, so much so that I had to go to the series of uh, workshops to overcome this chronic insomnia and the cardinal rule was not to read in bed was to to keep the two things separate um so now i get up early in the mornings because that also tends to help my insomnia and i read sort of six till seven if i can but it's harder now i i, I know this is a common refrain but i do find the concentration thing much harder and I have to have my computers and phone in a different room mm. and the internet blocker on and all of these things I uh, the days of sitting around and reading for three or four hours I think are probably gone sadly it's a bit of a shock isn't it when you realize that concentration is a muscle and you don't just have it yeah. and certain things limit it and yes. fry it yes no absolutely and I I'm sure there are books that I read quite happily in my 20s that I couldn't read now. When I was uh, in my 20s, I was uh, ill quite often uh, for various reasons. I spent a lot of time kind of sitting around in bed, sits, either worrying or reading. And I read through most of Dickens, just one after another, quite methodically, because I had all this spare time to, to read and worry in. And uh, I don't think I could do that now, not just because of the practicalities of, of life and family, but because um, I don't think I have the the dedication and the concentration anymore, which is sad. I, I really, I, I, I hope I get it back. Um, I'd hate to think, I never used to feel intimidated by thousand page novels in a way that I do now. I suppose 
Dickens is quite a good friend to the anxious, that you meet a lot of people in those books who are worrying about something. Yes. And I think yeah. that if you're at a point in your life when you've got a lot of things that you're worried about, it's quite, you feel as though you're in good company. Well, Dickens was the first, I suppose, serious novelist, a novelist that I thought of as a classic novelist mm. that I really, really loved. Great Expectations and David Copperfield. I, I found myself just identifying with uh, in a way that I hadn't found before, really, with fiction. And I still really love him, even though I haven't read one all the way through for <laughs> for um, maybe eight years or so. I worked on a film of Great Expectations, so I read it over and over and over again. The um, unfortunate result of that is that you, you slightly go off the book you're reading just through familiarity. Uh, it's like hearing, uh, you know, the same voice over and over and over again. And uh, I... I still hold on to it, though, as the book that had the biggest effect on me in the book. I, 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 it's still my favourite book, when I think. When did you read it first? I think I must have been about 15 or 16. I'd read a kind of children's cut-down version of Oliver Twist, which I'd loved, but then Great Expectations really did have a, a very profound effect on me. I still find it very, very moving. I think often when people think of Dickens and this idea of the Dickensian, it's about a kind of satire and a larger larger than life characters and this kind of scale this slightly caricatured uh, it's the woman with big tits making a pie while a man in a hat yeah. twirls in the start oh mm-hmm. i assume exactly. this is very cool it's the sort of lots of sort of very humble characters who have a single characteristic mm. which is which is which is their name <laughs> yeah which is their name and that's actually the thing that i like least about him mm. i've always thought that there there's a much um if you dig into the best of the books, there's a much more interesting, much darker psychology in uh, Great Expectations or Bleak House or Our Mutual Friend. That That is, uh, to me, is the, the great strength of Dickens, that darker stuff, the stuff that's more grounded and richer and less one or two-dimensional. Something I think about a lot is the number of very, you know, I suppose classic books, I'm doing air quotes, um, for the podcast listeners, <laughs> You know, things that are very highly regarded that now, not necessarily stylistically, but in terms of themes, they could be sold as YA books. And I think Great Expectations absolutely is, because I think it's all about, you know, youth and hope and people thinking a lot about becoming the people that they want to be. I suppose that's all books. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I I think Great Expectations is, when when I'm writing something, certain books... Not literally, but they're, they're, they're in front of me. They're the books that are in my mind. And Great Expectations certainly sneaks into my first book, Start of a Ten, quite a lot. And there's a little bit of it in, in the most recent book. Um, that idea of trying to work out who you are and who you want to be and the, the business, that the sometimes quite difficult emotional business of moving away from where you come from and your family, that's a recurring oh. theme. Um, now I think about it, um, not to tell you what your own book's about, but thinking about Sweet Sorrow and that party scene, and that I think is one of the best party scenes oh, any yeah, books yeah. I've ever read. Thank it's you. just so enchanting and thrilling because it's everything you want in your dream when a party really, really goes right. Yeah. And I think there is that you know idea of sort of people taking you at your own hopeful and generous estimation. Yes. And I think there's something a bit sort of... Pippish. Yes, there. no, absolutely. And the way he's swept away by this 
world which initially he feels excluded from mm. and then he's sort of actually welcomed into it or seems to be initially at least that, oh that very very brief sweet spot for anyone where you think oh this this isn't for me and then you think oh no actually this i'm not for this yeah, <laughs> and yeah, that yeah. bit where it's all meshing yes. so brief but so beautiful as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. We'll be back to David soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, the story you check the bookcase for first if your house got broken into. This week it's Evening in Paradise, a collection of short stories by Lucia Berlin, which is being reissued by Picador. Many of our guests love Berlin's famous collection, A Manual for Cleaning Women, and that's been on my to-read pile for a while. But this leaped into my line of vision immediately, and I'm so glad it did. Berlin lived a sad, strange and thrilling life, and it seeps into her stories in vivid detail. There are tales of Chilean high society, of loving and leaving drug addicts, intense friendships, surviving in the city and thriving in the wilderness. She's a little bit sedaris, a little bit loca, but her voice is entirely her own, and I can't recommend this hard enough. It really will stay with you forever. That's Evening in Paradise by Lucia Berlin, published by Picador. Huge thanks to Camilla Elworthy at Picador for my copy. Now, back to David. Shall we, yeah, shall we go, go back the, to the middle? middle shops so we've leapt past. from A to Z. Uh, I see. Oh, what is these? Oh, I meant to ask you about one yeah. over there that I yeah. saw and I thought I recognised, but um, I can't see the spine. Is that um, the Nell Zinc? It is, yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I really love those um, books. I, I, I've only read the, I read the first of the, of the two. I mean, I'm, I, I, it's, it's very... Did you um, read the Wall Creeper? I did, I read the Wall Creeper, yeah. I mean, it, I, and it was Rotten fascinating because it does, it does very... It's, it's interesting. Sometimes you want to read writers who you aspire to and who you would like to emulate and, and learn from. 
And at other times you read writers that you think, well, I have nothing in common with this writer. I couldn't do this. I couldn't, this isn't uh, my voice or experience or anything. And yet there's a kind of pleasure in that. And I found, I found that with her and with a lot of, I suppose, more avant-garde or modernist writers. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued and at the same time think page after page, I couldn't do this. I couldn't do anything remotely like this. I think perhaps because Miss Lade is more, but I think her voice, but and I wasn't expecting it necessarily when something is sort of so, so very, very hyped. And you're like, oh, I hope I like this. And yeah. I don't know if I can like yeah, this. Yeah. And then it kind of, I felt consumed and absorbed and I didn't want to look up straight away. But she does feel like a lot like the American writers I love. And I don't know if it's to do with kind of economy or confidence mm. or... What it is, especially because you know the wall creeper is in in Germany mostly. Or, yes, so, and I don't know. Maybe it's extra American when it's about that sort of foreignness and strangeness. But because yeah. you said about um, being very fond of American literature and whether she reminded you of anyone or anything, or she, well, well, I think what I, what I really like in a lot of uh, I'm just trying to pin down why I love well, when I was younger, in particular, I loved. Writers like John Irving, I suppose, was the first one. And Ken, Ken Kesey. Is it Kesey or Kesey? Oh, I don't know. I, I Ken. like very much. Uh, wrote one, one Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest. Ah. Uh, I loved those books. And I suppose I could tell that they were drawing from a kind of European tradition. I mean, John Irving is clearly taking a lot from Dickens. Mm. But there's a kind of exoticism to um, American domestic life. To dom- Domestic life in American fiction, that that, uh, a lot of great 20th century American writing makes ordinary lives feel very rich and deep and complicated. There's something, perhaps it's that sort of post-war thing, but I'm not confident about this, but I'm going to have a stab. Um, (laughs) A very basic level of affluence that seems to be in America, whereas here it's still a little bit kind of pinched and restrained and sort of, you know, even if you can have the, the shiny thing that makes it all easy, it's a bit vulgar, whereas there's, there's none of that. And there's sort of the sense of people being very, you know, they can focus absolutely on their interior lives because, yes. you know, everything's gleaming and yes, fabulous yes, yes. in there. Yes, I mean, that reminds me of John Cheever, who I really, really love. And... um read a lot of while I was writing the the book before this one um us yeah because there's that sense of as you say comfortable lives um middle class lives lives that seem quite respectable and stable on the surface but uh but are full of unspoken terror really and, and fear and anxiety and um unhappiness and that's a recurring idea in a lot of 20th century american writing and I, I I don't know why I'm attracted to that uh, I think maybe domestic writing you know, writing about family and relationships in America is maybe given a little more I don't know why the fact of its Americanness gives it more respect critical respect or, or weight but uh, it's that seems to be the case um, maybe there's less snobbery about writing about family or domestic life in America I suppose perhaps as well because a place where history is so recent so much more is made of the history yeah they can't be casual about it yes 
I certainly went through, there was definitely a, a, a time where it's pretty much all I read. Uh, um, Roth and Updike and, and I, well, Bella was the one that always defeated me. Scott Fitzgerald, who again was someone I really, really loved during that time when I was fixated on American He's writing. Hemingway. But the Hemingways are much nicer editions. Yeah. They're all Hannah's, I'm afraid. <laughs> but um, I've got a lot of very scrappy uh, Scott Fitzgerald up those... on the top shelf. But. Um, ah, they're very handsome too. They got... um, I mean, that was a writer I really, neck. really fell in love with. Um, What's your favourite? Well, very... Tender as the Night is the one I, 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 I completely Me too. Love. I read it every year. Yeah. And I think it's a very... I think often maybe it's the second most famous book that's actually the best book. Like, you're talking about Girls of Slender Means. I think Tender as the Night is a, is a much better book than The Great Gatsby. I mean, I can see that The Great Gatsby is is more concentrated and more perfect, but Tender as the Night is the one that I go back to a lot. My understanding is that there was an early, early version of Tender as the Night that was like completely chronological. Oh, no, yes, that was posthumously, I think. Yeah, and it's... it's I, 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 Because Tender as the Night sold, you know, 2,000 copies or something. It did very, very badly. And then he died, and I think the the publisher tried rejigging it so that it was told chronologically. And I've read both versions... I'm sure I have, but I'm not sure. Yeah, looking at the ones that I have, I don't know where I would have got this secret the chronological version. one. I think is uh, disastrous. I mean, I think it's it's clearly the wrong way around. It's much much better when you see this perfect life and then find out mm. the truth behind it, you rather don't... than being there being no surprise. I think it's interesting how icy and tricky and difficult Nicole is, even yeah. when you know that she's endured this tragedy. Yeah. You don't to kind of make that leap and I don't know if that's to do with sort of extreme wealth or or what it is and I think of that Dick a lot yes. and how powerful he is and then how weak and unraveled and you know and that and it's got the flattest ending ever yeah, but it couldn't end any other way it's like oh you know that was a shame though interestingly I read it recently and I when I read it when I was 17 18 i i loved dick diver so much i thought he was fantastically touching and tragic you know and that uh, this great man with all this wonderful potential uh just fades into the crowd but when i read it recently i felt a lot less sympathetic towards him i mean so much so that i worried that i, I thought maybe i should just put the book down and walk away because he suddenly seemed quite predatory and creepy and self-pitying no he he doesn't no and and his pursuit of rosemary the actress uh actually now seems a little bit squalid Mm. and um i'm almost scared to read it again in case i i kind of turn on it but i still love its melancholy there's a wonderful character in it called abe north who's the talented musician who drinks himself to death and dies off, off stage, so to speak. Is he and the one who's always sort of looking out for Nicole yeah. a little bit? He's and he's kind in of... love with Nicole and, and, and but... uh, he throws away his talent and... and... Oh, he's Ian! Ian, Ian. Well, Ian in, um, in, uh, in One Day. Yeah, except Ian is, you know, not particularly talented, but yes, he's the sort of... He's the loyal uh, watcher, I suppose. But, um, I always thought... Abe was was the, the the character was incredibly touching, 
And I found the whole book very moving, except, as I say, for this last reading where I thought, oh my goodness, I'm not sure if I should look at this again. But I feel that with a lot of books. I feel that if I, I love Thomas Hardy, and yet if I'd never read a Thomas Hardy and I picked up Tess now, I'm not sure that I'd love it as much as I do because of the the time when I read it. Oh, yes, Girl in Winter. Is that That's a beautiful edition, may I? This is lovely. I don't yeah. know if it's an old library copy. Um, £3, which pounds seems very reasonable, although it was originally £1.20. £1. something um, Yeah, I love um, Larkin's poetry, and I read A Girl in Winter when, again, when I was sort of 17, 18. A lot of my, I realise, a lot of my tastes and favourite books and favourite writers come from uh, from that particular period, and I loved Larkin. And again, I tried to read A Girl in Winter not so long ago, and because I was thinking, when I was thinking about Start of a Ten, it's because it's a, a university novel, and couldn't quite work out why I'd loved it so much when I'd first read it. Maybe I'm confusing it with Jill. Oh, no, it's A Girl in Winter. Yes, Jill is the one set in university, and Girl in Winter is the, is the family one. But, um... I don't know. There's so many books here that I think... I mean, there's a big D.H. Lawrence section there, and I've never read a D.H. Lawrence oh. novel, I'm ashamed to say. The list of things that I have to read is is huge. The, the gaps in my knowledge are really terrible. Let's budge them up. Oh, I don't but know if there's do any more... Do you feel as hypothetically you will read these at some point? No, I started to... I suppose, yes, it's not just the books I've read, it's the books I hope to read, but I feel now... I mean, I've started to do that terrible sum about how many more books I might squeeze into the next 20 years, and it's not many, it's not not enough. So there are things that I will definitely get to, but I could draw up a list of the next 20 books that I'd love to go one after another, but I know things will get in the way. Do you give up on a book? Are you a completist? I do, more so now. And do you I ever think, to. one day I'll come back, or do you just think, no, this is not Again, I used to think that, but now I've accepted that if it's not working, then it'll, it'll never get picked up again. Are these um, Kundera's yours? Yes. Though, I mean, like you were saying, when you associate certain spines with certain times of your mm. life, those Faber editions yeah. and the white, the white spine picadors as well, there was that great passion, wasn't there, for books in translation, picador... Uh, Latin American writing and East European writing. I don't think this is the um, unsettling <laughs> cover, but I, remember, I definitely read that edition of The Book of Laughter and Forgetting. Yeah. But that, he's a writer that I've... I read him when I was a teenager, and yeah. I don't think I'm smart enough now. I think I've killed too many brain cells. Have you read, have you read them all? You were, because uh, I've read um, Unbearable Lightness of Being and... Uh, life is elsewhere, but I could tell you almost nothing about them. It's uh, it must have been nineteen eighty seven or something. I think that was the that was the high point of Milan Kundera reading. Do you, have you read that Alan Hollinghurst? Uh, I've read uh, all of them except that one. Because um, uh, I saw a load somewhere. I yes, there's some. Um, I loved the Line of Beauty. I really did. I thought oh, that was um, a fantastic book. And it reminded me a lot of someone else I've just seen up there, Ian Forster, who I also really loved. Ah. Um, that, again, was uh, How's End I read when I was 18 or 19 and found it just wonderful. And, and I'd never really read a book from that era. Um, most of what I'd read that I thought of as classics mm. were Victorian, and I absolutely loved Howard's End. 
And it's oh. funny, isn't it, when you assume something might be a little bit sort of pompous or yeah, miserable, somehow exactly. earnest and worthy, and then there's a lot of life in something, yeah. people you recognise. Yes, there's a character in it called Leonard Bast, who I, I found myself identifying with hugely, this idea of aspiration. There's a terrible line about him, about his, his great familiarity with the outside of books. Uh, <laughs> and at 17, 18, I was um, self-aware enough, to, I think, to realise that I that a lot of the love I had for books and a lot of the talk I had about, a lot of the lines I had about fiction were, a lot of my understanding was quite superficial uh, and that it, was, um, it wasn't it was disconnected from the idea. Be, reading was one thing, being seen to be a reader was, mm. was another element on top of that, I think. This is a writer I really love, Helen Garner, um, who's an Australian novelist. I mean, only three novels, I think, and a lot of really fantastic journalism and uh, memoir. But those three novels are really wonderful. Uh, the Spare Room is a really brilliant, pin-sharp, dark comedy about the limits of friendship. And the earlier book, The Children's Bark, I think is absolutely stunning. It was out of print in this country for a long time. But... Um, it's a very touching story about a, fa- a loving family. Again, a domestic novel about a loving family that that falls to pieces, that a, a, an interloper arrives and shakes things up and things start to go wrong. But I really, really love her writing. She reminds me a lot of another writer I love, Elizabeth Strout, um, ah. uh, who I really, really admire. And this very um, incisive, tough... Um, but touching analysis of family life, I think, is is something I really, really admire. But Helen Garner, I think, should be better known. I think she's really a wonderful writer. Yes, I've just seen this Penelope Lively. Yes. Being, I love these, the Penguin modern classics with the um, O'Neill covers. Yeah. Uh, have you been reading this? I have. I wanted to read, I mean, the last book, uh, Sweet Sorrow, is set over the course of a summer, and so I was reading a lot of literature which which has a summer setting this is heatwave by penelope lively which again is a kind of chamber piece that unfolds over the course of one summer so a similar structure to to sweet sorrow i think when you're writing you want to read things that you you can draw on without feeling as if you're ripping them off or that they're going to sway you in it or push you in a direction you don't want to take and i knew that wasn't going to happen with this book but i i loved the atmosphere of of this rural summer setting and you mentioned Penelope Fitzgerald that's another writer who I who is called Penelope uh, who is called Penelope but who I'm also really obsessed with I spent a lot of the last couple of years trying to turn one of her novels into a play and I couldn't quite pull it off but I loved going back to that book again and again that's a uh, one of her earlier novels called At Freddy's which I think is a hugely underrated comic novel very very funny novel and best novel about theater that I can think of again it was one of those books that I had in mind that I could kind of that it was good to have it close while I was writing Mm. about theater because it was a it's very hard to write about that world without being precious or sentimental or pretentious and um, Penelope Fitzgerald has just the right amount of cynicism you know she takes it seriously but 
But it's also extremely funny about that world and those people. I've just seen you've got one of my problematic faves. Um, oh. I'm going to pronounce it very badly, so I'm just going to say dangerous liaisons. Um, oh, yes. Say, um, again, I think... Yes. <laughs> so I think I read, I had to read it as a student and I thought, oh, bloody hell, what is this? But it's, um, but obviously that's been done yes, very and... sort of baroquely. Yes. All the... Was there a play as well? Yes, it was a play originally then, a film ah. and various modern versions, and, but written in letter form again, which again you would think would make it very, very hard to adapt. Mm. Um, well, there's all these... Um, this is not my proper study, this is, kind of, this is the home study, but it's all uh, film books, and oh. graphic novels and things like that, oh, wow. and this foreign is your, editions. Um, your yeah. to, is that a Russian? No, it can't be um, Russian. That's which one? I'm looking at the start of a tense. Um, Kaiki Palin? Palin? Oh, goodness, I should know. Oh, yes, I think that's um, Polish, maybe. Ah. Oh, that's my guess. Where are you? Where are your fans other than here in, in the US? Do you um, have any... Are you big in any unexpected places? Uh, Germany <laughs> is... Uh, Germany, uh, there's a lot of um, British authors in translation in Germany. And Germany is a great place to, to do book events. I mean, they're these epic events. They're sort of two hours long. Wow. And and often you'll read in English and then an actor will perform in German and then you'll read in English again and the audiences are incredibly attentive and the events are really long and the How the, do you feel is there any part of you looking at the actor thinking that should be me? Or no, are you quite no, 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 no. They always read I, I tend to get a little bit uh, again, I do too much when I when I read. I've done these tours where you, you travel around with your actor and so I love doing events in Germany even though I come back uh, as if I've just yeah, just done some kind of great world stadium tour, I'm <laughs> completely exhausted. The conversation is absolutely, the conversations is fantastic. Yeah, that's a, a series of um, discussions between uh, Walter Murch, the great film editor, and the book next to it, Conversations with Wilder, um, oh, yeah. by Cameron Crowe, is absolutely fantastic. That's really wonderful. That's a series of very informal but very... Uh, incisive and intriguing conversations with Billy Wilder, who's one of my heroes, really. Mm. Um, that's a fantastic book, incredibly entertaining, but full of wisdom about screenwriting. Uh, the only book that's better, I think, about film is is um, is up there is um, Truffaut's book oh, with, uh, Hitchcock. with Hitchcock, yeah, which is absolutely incredible. great. And I mean, a great kind of uh, guide, really, to filmmaking, film editing, and 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 failure and how, scruffy, um, but I love it. I love unflattering that picture <laughs> of uh, We are in um, David's bedroom. The few writers who've kindly, um, and there are loads up. and loads of books in I here. Do it, but there are so many books here that. Um, that, uh, and the books oh, that I'm currently reading. The Idiot by Ellie Batman. I love that oh, book. That was great. Um, yeah, no, that was really, fantastic. Really funny. Oh, I wanted to ask about the um, the oh. Teva Janssen as well because I saw some of her. Oh yes. Downstairs. Well, I haven't read the I haven't read the grown up books, but the Moomins had a huge effect on me. I found them so sad and strange. I think I must have been seven or eight or something, and I read all of them straight through. And those later Moomin books, I I still think there's a kind of when I think about them, I can summon up the memory of 
the melancholy that those books <laughs> provoked, uh, which is very strange, isn't it? It's a very strange response to have to a book when you're a child. To feel deeply sad. Andy Miller talks about this a lot. Yeah. And I think he's so right about there were so few things for him in childhood that said that a lot of this is sort of long and miserable and difficult and complicated and relentless mm. feeling. And the Moomins did that when everything else is a bit, you know, yeah. jollying you along. It's like best days of your lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I did, uh, I, I, I think even at that stage, I loved it as well. I mean, melancholy is a kind of. Um, strange sensation to feel drawn to when you're a child it makes me sound very kind of moody and 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 um and dark i don't think i was but i did love the sadness that was in those books oh laurie moore i just read because sinead gleason oh, talked yes. about um who will save the frog, the frog yes yeah i mean i um, absolutely love that book so it's I one of my favorite novels laurie moore before, yeah. it, was, um, it took me a little while i think because even though it's not an enormous book, something happens in that book that is not dissimilar from mm. Sweet Sorrow. Mm. There's um, someone is doing their summer job and is running a scam. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I was thinking, it's not yes. going to end well, is no, it? No, no, no. I, I thought that book was... Uh, I mean, I love Laurie Moore. I love her short stories. And I think that novel as well is really um, underrated. And it's really, really, a really brilliant snapshot of a particular period in your... You know, adolescence, and again, was the book that I kind of thought of a lot when I was writing Sweet Sorrow. I really loved it. There's certain writers, you know, who kind of... You read and you, you immediately want to run to your keyboard and write in the hope that you'll take some of that with you, that you'll, you'll somehow, by reading them, you've sort of absorbed those insights and that style, that beautiful writing. And um, Are there any writers that you unconsciously find yourself imitating... Any sort of writer sense or two or a page and think, oh no, that's um. Well, I was, it's interesting. To, writers that I have to avoid, who I really admire, but I have to avoid because I know that I'll end up doing a bad version, particularly in comedy. Writers like David Sedaris, you know, it's a very distinctive, mm. really brilliant, finely tuned comic voice. And it would be you know, all too easy to write a kind of pastiche, to write a bad version of that kind of comic tone. So um, I have to make sure I don't do this bad impersonation, um, even though you admire them and you kind of aspire to that, that, that kind of writing. Uh, Laurie Moore's another one. Um, I mean, with, uh, uh, Sue Townsend was another yes. one, uh, you know, really fantastic comic writer and uh, very precise and clever in the way she uses... Uh, everyday objects and trade uh, brand names and things like that and you have to uh, put a line through it if you're Mm. you're obviously copying it too clearly. But then I think that's such a great lesson isn't there's so much humour in what is very very specific. Yeah 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 absolutely and I think a lot of the writers like Sue Townsend or Victoria Wood or Alan Bennett does it a little as well those very very specific cultural references that Mm. are that are very funny, but it can sometimes be, if not used well, it can be a bit of an easy joke. I love um, Feel Free, and I love Zadie yeah. Smith as a novelist, and I love yeah. her as an essayist even more, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, um, a writer who I will read uh, you know, anything and everything by Zadie Smith, and the fiction is fantastic, I think. I love these books too. I mean, they're, they're sort of, it's a bit of a vice, isn't it, reading about how other writers write. But these volumes of um, Paris Review interviews, I think they're, they're incredibly entertaining. Oh, they're great. They're really great. There's four of them. 
And um, I think was it Patricia Lockwood who said that amazing tweet to the Paris Review, just saying, "So is Paris any good or what?" <laughs> and these are really. Uh, I mean, you, when you're reading about how other writers write, maybe you're always hoping that there'll be a little, you know, a trick or a routine or something that'll that'll give you, provide you with the same kind of magic. God, someone's just going to say, if you just go out and eat some leaves at four yeah, in the morning, exactly. it'll come, it'll rather come. than you just have to sit down and do it. <laughs> um, I think there's in the John Cheever one, there's something about him. His office was in the same building where he lived and he would go downstairs, uh, he would put on a suit and go downstairs and then change out of the suit into his writing clothes and then do the same thing in reverse so that there was a sense of going to work and rolling up his sleeves. And I think it's also in here the... Um, oh, Joan Didion. I wonder if it's in here. Because Joan Didion was a journalist and a very fast typer. Uh, typer. Uh, typist. <laughs> a very fast typist. Um, that she would start... The first day of writing a book, she'd write a thousand words. And then the second day, she would write the first thousand words out again and continue and do the next two thousand words. And then on the next day, write three thousand words. And so she was editing as she went along and typing the whole thing out. Like learning a piece on a musical instrument where you yeah. keep adding. Yeah, exactly. Refining and doing that in chunks until the book was finished. But, but sort of um, just through the act of typing it out refining it and making sure that every word is worth typing. Uh, I may have made that up completely, but I remember reading something like that and thinking, well, that's the key. The key is not to edit the document you have, mm. but to start the document again. And when I wrote... Have you been doing that? I, when I wrote one day, I did that. Yeah, I, I wrote it all and then I wrote it all again. I mean, I didn't do it day by day, but I didn't edit the document I had. I started it again. And then I did it again. And um, I, it took forever. <laughs> I mean, it did what you'd hope it would do. It, you know, it made you think about each word and give it... A, it, it made wonder, is this paragraph really necessary? Because you're, you're not editing what's already there. And you're having to do the labour, and it does feel like labour. But uh, it took far too long, and I'm not sure that the, the benefits were outweighed, outweighed the, um, the hours I put in. But I did do that. And you're I, saying that about... One day, then yeah. that must have taken. It must have been a real labour. Well, it took a lot longer than um, than anything else I'd written. Um, not just because I was I wasn't editing the document, but um, just planning it all. And uh, there was no one particularly tapping their watch for me mm. to, to deliver it. So I took as long as it, as it needed. But I haven't done that since. I, I always think I should. I always think it's good to start with a a blank page and. F it's superstitious, isn't it? But feel every word going into the file and feel that, that it's um, it's worth its weight. I think Jane Didion's interesting because she's had this odd sort of... I don't know, and I don't think she's ever not been, you know, beloved yeah. or read, but she seems to be having a bit of a sort of renaissance. Yeah. I, I read Play It As It Lays, which really stayed with me. It has this, It's sort of like a, a Brett Easton Ellis novel before Brad Easton Ellis it has a kind of a sort of chilly sort of cokey nasty hollow feel to it it's a very brilliant Hollywood novel it's very disturbing I thought that was fantastic and I've read quite a lot of the, the I know journalism. it's a daft thing to say but I think it's really really interesting how you talk about you know written obviously you're 
extremely well read. I've seen many, many books, but but the the stories that you tell do have so much warmth to them. And I don't know whether you agree or not, but that you're a lot of your successes, I think, that you have written books where people feel as though they're, they're among friends. I'm happy that's the case. I always think that they're much darker than the response that, <laughs> that they get. I mean, I always think that they're about people falling to pieces or you know, having breakdowns or terrible, difficult family relationships or love affairs that aren't quite right. But I suppose they're all, they're all also about people trying to be better, you know, trying to... There's a recurring phrase in Sweet Sorrow about the character trying to find a way to move through the world, mm. you know, a better way to be. And the characters are always earnestly pursuing that, trying to be better even as they do things which are either misguided or, or, or uh, wrong. I, I, I sometimes think maybe I should write something really cruel or cold or dark you know there's this um there's a res- not a respectability but a kind of uh people quite often say uh in defense of something oh it's very dark you know it's very dark and difficult and uh i wonder if i could write something that was actively spiteful or cruel now i come to think of that though when after one day came out i did r- start writing a book and wrote quite a lot of it that was much more unpleasant than anything I'd written as much to do with the response of, of one day and yeah, having this it was, uh, that sense that desire to show kind of versatility it, yeah that that, that, that that you can do something different and going off in a wildly different direction then uh, very quickly I realized was a mistake and I I threw this thing away but um it was definitely an attempt to yeah to spoil people's enjoyment, I suppose. I mean, it's very perverse to write a book that was so much more difficult and nasty. I'm making it sound as if it was this... You know, I wonder really... if that's an element of, you know, the acting legacy is when you get known for a particular role, yeah. you keep being put up for that role, and you're like, well, no, I can... I want to do something else. I can be Hamlet and Polonius, thank you. Yeah. I have the range. And yet, I, I mean, I worry about that sometimes as a writer, that, you, that I, I'm aware there are enough of the books now for me to realise that there are certain things that I come back to and have done more than once. You know, there's always a party scene. There's often scenes of social embarrassment. There's often difficult relationships with parents. And I, I'm aware that, they, that there's a danger that they become clichés or tropes uh, or uh, that you repeat yourself. And at the same time, you can make it, it. It's sometimes a terrible mistake to to strain to show your versatility, to go off in a direction that isn't just unexpected, but something that you can't do. Um, to miscast yourself, and um, I think about that a lot and worry about that. Whether I should write something that's wildly different, or whether that's just self-destructive and doomed to failure. Thanks so much, David. Do follow him on Twitter and give him some love. He's at David N. Writer. Also, David has been such a generous and enthusiastic supporter of the podcast since we launched, so it's been a real delight to have him on. I'm Daisy Buchanan, and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, fellow bibliobabes. You can find me on Twitter at NotRoyalGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy B. Say hello, suggest some guests, and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acars.com slash booked, for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. 
If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at ybooked at gmail.com. That's the letter Y, booked at gmail. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I leave you with the following. A man walks into the library and says, Hello, I'd like a pizza. The librarian frowns. Sir, this is a library. Oh, sorry, says the man. Hello, I'd like a pizza. 